Hello and welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the co-founder of Milk Makeup, Zana Roberts-Rassi. Zana's very first job was as a model after her boyfriend at the time secretly entered her into a modelling competition. While it was never really her passion, Zana explains that it did open her eyes to the number of roles that existed and still do exist behind the scenes. She spent most of her time on set asking questions of those around her. So it's no surprise that the job she eventually moved into was that of a journalist. It was while having her makeup done on set that Zana realised she wanted to be part of the storytelling of beauty. So she made herself known to the beauty editor of the magazine for which she was modelling and secured herself an internship. In time, Zana became a beauty assistant and eventually beauty editor at Marie Claire magazine, during which time she met her now husband, Mazdak Rassi, co-founder of Milk Studios. Zana then moved from London to New York and was soon asked to host a fashion segment on the Today Show. The segment became a launchpad for her television career, with Zana now serving as E's style correspondent, a Today Show contributor, and previously as a guest judge and mentor on Project One Way All Stars. It was in around 2013 that Zana, her husband, and their soon-to-be Milk co-founders, Georgie Greville and Diana Ruth, began to conceptualise what would eventually become Milk Makeup, craving easy, fun, multitasking products. They launched in 2016 with 85 products and today Milk Makeup is available to consumers in over 130 countries. In this conversation, Zana shares why Milk are intent on creating products that have never been seen before, her story of her stint as an undercover makeup artist at Paris Fashion Week and why her first real encounter with beauty was reminiscent of, in her own words, advanced hypothermia. So you grew up in Manchester, youngest of three girls. So let's start right there. What is your very, very earliest memory of beauty? Oh gosh. Um, Yes, I grew up in Manchester. I was one of three girls. Um, It was probably early nineties. Um, and for anyone listening, Manchester is the north of England, um, kind of very down to earth, fun loving people. Um, and my sisters and I grew up very traditional uh, with my parents, three girls um, in the early 90s. I was probably around 11. Um, my sister Jane, the middle sister, would, would have been like 13. Uh, my elder sister Paula, 15. Um, you know, and they were going through the phase. They were having like the perms and it was like that that era and it was like the spiral type perms. I wasn't allowed one until I turned 12 though. So I was saved by that rule. Um, but I remember they had all these like, like scrappy makeup. It was from like boots or bits from my mom or my gran. Um, but there was one lipstick called Twilight Teaser and it was this it was quite renowned it was like this bluey silvery frosted like lilac shade from boots number seven um and i remember stealing it from my sister paula sorry paula um and i'm just popping it on and i remember looking in the mirror and seeing just the power that this lipstick had and it completely altered my face and the way i've never looked at myself like that before 
Um, and I just, I mean, it wasn't even the most flattering colour. I was about to say, what a fun shade <laughs> for a 12-year-old to be wearing. No, it's like this advanced hypothermia. <laughs> you look How like nice. Bordering. Yeah, it's blue. Um, but there was something about it was magic. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I get the power of this. You know, but as I said, it was early 90s, so I was probably there in like, baggy jeans and a, a bucket hat listening to the Fugees or whatever it was at the time. I mean, no disrespect to baggy jeans and a bucket hat. It all comes it's back. Circle. It? It's come full circle. I'm not yet wearing Twilight Teaser again, but I will never say never. Yeah, you just don't know, do you? <laughs> so your very first job was as a model after winning a modelling competition, mm. which I'm pretty sure wasn't the dream job growing up. So what did you think that you were going to be when you grew up? You really do your research, Jen. I'm, I'm, I'm like a mad scientist <laughs> with this. As a journalist to another one, I respect the fact you do so much research. Oh, yeah, that's something you. I don't really talk about that much, but it was definitely part of where I am right now. Um, it was definitely not my dream job. I came, it happened by pure... Um, coincident luck a boyfriend at the time entered me into a competition but um when it came to actually what I wanted to be when I grew up I don't you know I don't think I really knew um I wish I had a prolific answer I wish I was really clear and had a vocation in life in many ways but I really didn't and my parents never were the parents who were like what do you want to do when you grow up um which I'm actually quite grateful for I think they consciously weren't asking us that because they wanted us to experience right they wanted us to they didn't want to pigeonhole us early. They didn't want us to be like, oh, this is what I'm going to do and then have this one path. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, like I was a diligent student. I was locked myself in my room and study until I got the best grades. So um, I don't think they had to worry about that. Um, but I've definitely adopted the same attitude with my kids as well. I, you know, I think someone recently asked, well, it was a while ago, but asked my four-year-old what she wanted to be when she grew up. And it was a swanky party. and It was a lovely French guy. And I was like, why is he asking my boyfriend what she wants to be? Um, and Rumi's answer was, she's like, an artist. And I was like, oh, great, oh. fantastic, nice, Rumi. Um, and then she turned around, a nail artist. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I was like, there's my girl. Um, but I, I don't know, I, I had no big dreams. I just knew I wanted to experience as much as the world could throw at me. Well, talk to me about modelling. So you you were entered in this competition, but am I right in saying that you were more interested in what was happening behind the scenes rather than in front of the camera? Oh, my God, 100%. Yeah, I mean, like I said, that was a pure, like a boyfriend at the time entered me a competition that I knew nothing about. The first thing I knew about this competition was when I got a call from London from Storm Model Agency saying you've, you've got in the final and you have to come to London immediately. And I was like, surprise. I know. It was like the biggest. And I mean, look, I was like five, six at a push, braces, just shy. This was not, not this was not meant to be my path. Um, and I think I was probably a pretty bad model too. <laughs> wasn't great um you know I remember one photographer on one set was like I love her look I was literally on set 
and I could hear them talk, like discussing behind the camera. Oh no. Um, which is the worst thing to do. And, and oh. now as an editor, and I am so conscious about how you mm. behave around models and how you deal with doing castings. And it's just not cool. But I do, and he's quite a famous photographer at the time. And he said, she, I love her look, but darling, I just don't think she's going to move very well. <laughs> oh, perfect. This is such wonderful feedback to be getting as a teenager in as real 16, time. As a 17-year-old girl. <laughs> Surprise, I wasn't scarred for life. Um, but, you know, it was, it was interesting. And that, but I, what I was good at was understanding what everyone behind the camera was doing. I was like, all these people to create this image and write this story, this is amazing, right? So I'd start talking to the makeup artist and the hairdresser and like, what's this photographer's assistant doing? And what's this person doing over there? And oh, is this production? What's a journalist? Like I started asking questions that I never would have even known. They were almost like these invisible jobs at the time. Mm. And I was discovering them. And it was just this incredible eye-opening experience. Um, so I was like the girl who'd be like, can I help you with your thing? I don't really want to go back out there. What can I do to help you? <laughs> but it was fun. Look, I've got a lot to thank for those experiences as well. Well, it was while you were modelling that you met Rebecca Field, who was at the time beauty editor at Looks Magazine. She gave you your first internship. Talk me through that. What was that role and what did you love about magazines at the time? magazines at the time well Becky first was my first she was the first entry into magazines and she was so gracious um I was cast as a model on one of her sets and it was um a beauty shoot for looks magazine <laughs> I was always the beauty girl because I was like the small one um, I was about to say I like that you said I wasn't a very good model but here you are just booking jobs <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I, I suppose I did work maybe I just wasn't it just didn't feel right for me I felt like a little bit of a fraud doing it <laughs> Um, but she was, I remember being in the chair and the makeup artist was changing my look from like, I had like five different looks. One was like a lampy look and one was like a glamorous red lip. The other one was like a sun drenched golden glow. Um, and Becky was interviewing the makeup artist at the time. So she was like taking notes and writing down like the step by step. So she would then put that in the magazine. I was there in the chair listening, not knowing much about makeup learning so much like what oh oh that's how you do it oh this is oh my gosh this is fascinating what about that tip that's amazing um so I was like how can I want to be part of this I want to tell this story too I want to help people look their best if I'm learning this just sat in this chair right now imagine what I could do if I did it on a bigger scale like these people do um so on that I was just like Becky if there's ever any time you can you know this thing called internship whatever it is work experience as we call it in the UK um let me know and I, I'll be there and I will 100% help and she called me and I found myself basically sat behind the desk that I used to and the magazine tower that I used to go in for castings it was a wonderful feeling it was from there that you became a beauty assistant and eventually beauty editor at Marie Claire mm-hmm. Yeah. A very different time for beauty. Can you share some highlights from that period of your career? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Well, it was like it was, it was the noughties. Yeah. Um, so beauty editors were really the only people talking about beauty. Well, it's pre-Instagram, pre-blogs. Right? Exactly, exactly. There was none of that. You had the beauty editors talking about it, all the brand reps in the count behind the counters, right in the department stores. Mm. 
So it was, we were kind of like the OG influencers, if you like, mm-hmm. um, treated with the highest regard, by the way, it was a fantastic gig. Um, you know, magazine budgets were good. And we, I had a lot of autonomy at a very early age. I was like 24, 25 um, and held the purse strings for the whole department. And I could literally like spin the globe and say, where should I go and do a shoot? Um, and I'd end up in like the Brazilian rainforest with supermodels or Reykjavik in the, in the lagoons doing a beauty shoot or celebs in St. Lucia or Maui on a swim shoot. You know, it was incredible. And then I also got some amazing, you know, times of um, working with the pros, like working with the Bobby Browns of the world, interviewing them, interviewing founders, working with amazing makeup artists on set like a Pat McGrath or a, a Charlotte Tilbury. You know, I was immersed with these people all the time. So you're just, you're just soaking it all in. Um, and I also got a chance to write some really fun stories, some that I don't know that exist today. Um, some of my favorite stories were like one of them that always comes to mind was I pretended to be a makeup artist with Mac. So I went undercover. Oh my God. As a Mac at the, at the fashion, at Paris fashion shows. So <laughs> there's me with like all the Mac makeup artists, all in black. We all had dressed black and they were all like laughing. It was Terry Barber at the time. We got you, we got you, come on. Um, and I always found myself backstage at McQueen, just oh doing literally like God. putting, eye, it was insane, like putting eyelashes on, like Erin O'Connor at the time. And I remember being so nervous, my hand was just shaking. <laughs> and, I, and I think they demoted me to like putting stroke cream on the legs before they went out <laughs> and the runway. Um, but then, and meeting Lee backstage then, he was completely like, who is this girl? What is she doing? Um, and then doing the Dries Van Noten show as well, just the 50th anniversary, incredible times. And there was me like being this makeup artist, just like pretending, pretending undercover makeup artist. And then I wrote a whole story about it and like the tips and the tricks, but also what they have to deal with in fashion week. Mm. And it's, it's gnarly, right? They're doing like at that time, like 20 shows a day. Um, but it truly was a, it was a, a magical time to be a, an editor and have, again, like, just think of ideas and be like, I've got this idea, say to my editor, let's do this story. And they were like, yeah, you know what? Okay, go for it. And then, this, you know, not to mention all the press trips that you get. Yeah. The <laughs> wow. thought of applying false eyelashes at any time gives me heart palpitations, <laughs> but to be doing it backstage at McQueen, oh, my God. Yeah, with Lee wandering around himself. Um, yeah, it was it was quite gnarly. I definitely did just end up applying strong cream, though. I, d- I think I demoted myself at the time. <laughs> yeah. You got to know your strengths. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll just write about this. I think. Well, on that note, were there any lessons from the early days of your journalism career that you find you're applying to your work now with Milk? Uh, oh my god, hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'm not applying false eyelashes to anyone anymore, but. Um, you know, it's my journalist brain is always on. And you you would know this if you went and worked with any brand, right? You're mm-hmm. always looking for the hook. Like, what story? What's the angle? How can I tell this in an interesting way to the reader, the viewer, the consumer now? Um, what's the headline? Right? We're launching a new scar. I'm like, what's the headline? What's the interest here? What's going to make people sit up and take note when there's 800,000 mascaras out there right now? Same with content. It's like as an editor and a journalist, you're just finding the new angle and then putting it out there in a way that um, relates, really, translating that information. 
Can you recall your very first visit to Milk Studios? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was a very meta experience. Um, I was the assistant on a Marie Claire UK cover shoot with Anne Hathaway. And Anne was, um, Annie, as we call her, um, was the, it was for the Devil Wears Prada. Oh. So, <laughs> I know, right? Already good stuff. Okay. <laughs> so, this was like 2005 and it was a cover shoot. And there was the irony of me going to New York for the first time as an assistant at a big magazine, like schlepping all these clothes in. And I remember getting into the elevators at Milk Studios just like drowning in bags of garment bags and like falling in and like, I kid you not, Naomi Campbell was in the elevator. No. Yeah. And then this again, like, you know, a small fish in a big ocean. This keeps on happening to me, by the way, in my life. It's like small fish, big ocean. Oh God, here she goes again. Um, And going up to the eighth floor, like falling out the elevator with all my bags. And the wonderful girl on the milk lobby reception. I wish I knew who it was. I must ask Brassy who that was. Um, she like ran up, helped me out, picked up my bags, like ushered me into the studio really quickly, probably out of everyone else's sight because I was this embarrassing scrappy girl <laughs> falling all over. Um, and then I just remember being really welcoming. They saved my ass. <laughs> it could have been really embarrassing. Um, and then we shot Anne Hathaway. And, yeah, like I said, it was a pretty meta experience. But I did not meet my now husband, who started Milk Studios, on that shoot. It was a year uh-huh. later. Okay, there we go. Another perfect segue. Because you, <laughs> So you met him a year after that. In yeah, time, yeah. you obviously moved to New York. And mm-hmm. soon thereafter, you're asked to host a fashion segment on the Today Show. Had you considered television journalism at any point prior to that or did you just fall in love with it on the spot? Um, I had not mm-hmm. considered it, um, but I I loved it immediately. I was petrified, don't get me wrong. I was, sure. um, you know, up the night before. I remember being in the, in the fashion closet in Marie Claire with my assistant at the time, <laughs> like with my note cards, condensing them down to smaller and smaller bites so it would go in my head and then rehearsing and rehearsing and getting it right. Because live TV, you have six million people and you've got three mm. minutes to get the message across. So you have to like kind of nail it. And, and I nailed it. And I, the buzz from that was epic. Um, and then I also really liked the idea that I was just dispensing this really useful information to real women, right? So I was doing fashion at the time as a fashion editor at Marie Claire because I moved over to Marie Claire US as a fashion editor, away from beauty. Um, so they'd asked me to do this. It was probably like all body types, under $100, you know, really like relatable. Um, and I pulled it together. But this was on the back of being a fashion editor at a big glossy magazine where I was doing just, you know, thousands of dollars worth of outfits so like mm. Gucci head to toe on gorgeous supermodels in gorgeous locations shot by the best photographers and yes it was wonderfully creative and aspirational but did I um sorry but did I um you know it wasn't very fulfilling for me with my journalistic roots although my need to give like takeaway I didn't mm. feel I was really helping the real woman it was just aspiration and inspiration so this TV world was like, oh my gosh, I can 
like legit help people right now. I can give them what's going to work for their body type. I can show them how to wear a trend on a budget and they can shop it immediately. I was like, hmm, I like this. So yeah, it was, it was pretty immediate actually. And then I just started doing more and more and more to the point where I had to leave magazines full time because I was doing so much TV. Let's fast forward to around 2015, 2016. At what point did you start thinking about milk makeup? What did you feel was missing from the existing colour cosmetics offering? Gosh, um, now it's such a saturated market, isn't it? But then we were, um, you know, we were, it was five, five years ago we launched, but it was a few years before that we started Inception. Um, and myself, Diana, and, um, Rossi and Georgie, between us had five kids under the age of four. So young oh, parents. no. Yeah, nuts, nuts to start a business at this point in your life. Um, but we were also, because of that, we were flat out busy. We mm. didn't have a spare second in the day. And we really were craving makeup that was multitasking, that was easy on the go, that wasn't, it was just super low maintenance and easy to use, right? We didn't want to have 15 products and cumbersome makeup art, makeup to like get ready with. We're like, literally, I need, I've got six minutes to get ready. And that includes the shower. So let's make something that's quick. Let's make something that's clean because we want our kids to be able to play with it. And we want to put really good stuff on our faces as well. So it was this like opening we really saw just for um, a utilitarian makeup that was really good for you at the same time. Um, it was, I, I always say our mission was really just to simplify makeup. I call it beautility. Love it. It's <laughs> funny you say that it's a saturated market, which of course it is, but I still feel like what Milk's doing is different. I do too. I, I do too. And that's very much part of our magic. And it's part of Diana Ruth, our, her magic, because she, she is our COO and co-founder. Mm. Uh, you will laugh. Diana will never, ever do anything that already exists. Like that's her yeah. mantra. Um, and she... Even at launch, you know, you'll talk about, oh, I'm going to do an eyeshadow. She's like, Absolutely not. There's too many palettes in the world. We don't need any more palettes. Like every, she approaches everything with how can I make this better, cleaner, more sustainable and more effective. Like that's, and it's such a great way of looking at things. Um, she's very much innovation first, which keeps us ahead. Mm. You launched in February 2016. What physically went into that launch? It's one thing to have this idea, but there's a lot of steps that go into physically launching a brand, particularly one that launched with about 85 products. I read that and I fell (laughs) off my chair. It's ridiculous. It was the most ambitious launch. But, you know, Diana came to the first meeting. She had like 125 SKUs. (laughs) Where have you been storing me? How long have you been planning? Um, so the idea was, I mean, the original idea actually came from, it was around 2010 and Milk Studios um, in downtown New York City hosted all the New York Fashion Week shows. Mm-hmm. So um, Mac were also a sponsor. So Mac Cosmetics teamed with Milk and had Mac and Milk. Uh-huh. It was kind of this play. Yeah. It, and so that's, we had like wipes and um all sorts of different products that we use backstage at shows. Um, so that was really like the genesis and like, oh, is there a makeup line in this for milk? 
Um, and John Dempsey was actually one of Ross, still Rossi's like mentor and was always talking about a makeup line for milk back in the day. Um, so we, but that's, that's a kind of a sign up, but that's after that, we went to Sephora with this idea. So we had this vision, we had this deck, we had a sizzle reel, we had the, all of us and loads of energy. We didn't have one product, by the way, no one at this time. We just like sat in San Francisco in the big office of Sephora and pitched our hearts out. Um, and they were like, if you guys can make the thing that you're talking about, this white space, because they could see it. They saw this next gen white space, like clean and utilitarian, cool. They're like, we will take it. And we were like, okay. So then we headed back to New York. Rossi, he was the one who got the band together. You know, he got Diana, Georgie Greville, who's also our co-founder, his amazing creative director, um, and myself together coming from the editorial side. And we just started building. Um, we had, you know, like I said, Georgie was doing a lot of the video stuff and she is an incredible visionary. So she was doing all the campaigns and the creative behind it. Rossi, he's the branding guy. He's obsessed with packaging to the point where he's like, he studied architecture, so he's very much into that. Oh, this makes a lot of sense. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. You can tell he's yeah. in the packaging, can't you? Yeah. He's like, even the word milk, he liked when they named Studio Milk because of the way it's written and it's super architectural and clean. Mm. Um, so a lot of that has stemmed through into our products. Um, and then Diana, obviously, our product zeitgeist wizard, and she was head of operations. Then myself, um, I was there doing the editorialization of stuff again, you know, writing press releases, casting people, bringing it, amplifying the message. It was fun. We were all in a bunker in an airless room about 200 square feet in the bottom of milk like in a basement somewhere, plotting this little, like, what are we going to do? Where is this going to end up? You know, I think we had a microwave, the shared bathroom and lots of testers, but. Beauty's so happened. glamorous. Isn't it glamorous? I mean, now you look at it's like it's, it, these memories are so good though and we just had our five-year anniversary so I was going through the pictures and sending them the crew and there's some funny pictures of us just back in the day there with like tester parts and like our little kids running around like little little kids and now they're all like seven and eight and nine um but yeah we would just be sat there drinking tequila naming products and coming up with social franchises and content videos and yeah, it was, it was some good days. And, you know, I have to say, a lot of the people who started then, specifically on Diana's team, product development, are still there today. Um, just well, a that speaks for what a leader. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? And, like, Melissa, we love, and Daniel. Like, they're all still there, and they're just, like, solid, solid, which is – and they're so much part of our growth, and they're just, like, like Hallie, who does a lot of the design. Like, these people are just brilliant, absolutely such a great team. You mentioned that Diana won't do anything that's been done before. So how did you all put your heads together and decide which products to launch with? Like, what was the criteria? I mean, it was literally like never nothing that no one ever, we launched things that no one had ever seen before. So it actually mm -hmm. looked like nothing people had seen before when, when it came out. You know, we had, I don't know if you, I'd love to get you pictures, but these concealer pots that look like AirPods before AirPods. It literally oh. looked like an AirPod pack, I know. Um, 
and it had a, a liquid concealer roller ball so you could roll the concealer on and then it had a pad in the middle which was um, a sponge concealer so it was a harder consistency so you could dab it on the more on the darker areas it was genius mm. and then we had a highlighter that was actually an eyeliner looked like a highlighter pen I mean, it was very arts and crafts supply store. And then you had this like, super high tech vibe. Um, I mean, it was just all like really next level stuff. Um, and then we had Cooling Water, which is one of our heroes still today, mm. which is the big, big tube, big um, stick. Uh, Sunshine Oil was one of our first ones. You know, comes in a rollerball. It, it was, that was based on a medical dispensary pen. Like everything was really unique in its own way. Um, so that was definitely one of the reasons, like how we chose the first ones. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, we'd, we'd asked, we had to lean on Sephora as well. We, we don't yeah. know. We just think this is cool. What do you think? They were like, whoa, <laughs> you guys are nuts. <laughs> but they, they bought into it and, you know, we had some of our best sellers. So it was fun times. Milk is cruelty free paraben free and vegan why were these elements non-negotiables for you i mean one of the things i think when we did set out was to just rewrite these old school beliefs that you can't have it all in one line Mm. we wanted clean we wanted good for you we wanted epic payoff we wanted it to look cool when you pulled it out of your bag and this was just one of the highest priorities for us from the get-go um there's no doubt it's where the industry has to go and we wanted to be leading it as always as we do with anything um you know and there's also there's so many great alternatives to why why do we even need to use any animal byproduct and by us looking further into that we came up with some brilliant solutions that are now like our calling card so if you look at kushmas Dara, instead of using beeswax, because we're obviously vegan, we can't use mm. beeswax as a binding agent, so we used hemp derived cannabis oil seed and then extract, sorry. And then that is um, in itself an amazing binding agent, but it's also very nourishing for lashes. So you get this double, double bubble, if you like, for your lashes, whereas you wouldn't have got that with beeswax. So by default, we ended up discovering new magical ingredients as well. Um, you know, you don't need to use fish scales to have a shiny lip, which PS is in some lip glosses, right? You can use a a coconut oil to get the same effect. So it was just always about there are better alternatives, maybe synthetic or natural, but using animals byproducts just wasn't even an option. Did that present any challenges though in product development? Because obviously you've come up with these incredible alternatives, but it's still not the norm. So I imagine that that adds, you know, a bit of extra time onto the process. Yeah, absolutely. It does. I mean, in many ways, I think it's, it's harder, you know, you've got to have a lot more research time, you've got to have development time, you have to keep things stable more often, you know, um, and Diana and her team deal with that so well, but it's just part of the, it's almost built into the timeline now. Um, and that's, that's the future. We just, if you, if, if you're going to do something too quickly and, and on the cheap, then that's what the consumer's going to get right at the end of the day. Mm. It's worth the wait. On product development, how does that process work at Milk? Are you constantly thinking about what's going to come next or are you working off consumer demand or is it a combination of the two? Combo, I'd say. I mean, inherently, it's always we're about what's next. We're about the zeitgeist. We're about early adopters. You know, everything about Milk Studios is about the early adopters, the trends, what's what's popping. 
Um, but for development, I think it's, yeah, it's very much a combination of that. Um, Diana and her team do so much research and work to identify what's new in the market and also what's a white space in the market. Um, and then we do now, more than ever, we can listen to our community, thanks to mm-hmm. social and the two-way stream that we have of communication and you know, get some really great thoughts and thought starters and ideas from the community for sure. Milk's ethos is live your look. What does that mean to you? Live your look. Uh, live your look to me personally means it's the look that you paint on, put on in a morning or before you go and do something that then powers you through that. So it could be a big meeting, right? And pop on a ball of lip, right? A big, like really good math, right? Because you want people to look at what you're saying. And you want people to hear what you're saying. Um, and I'm so much about the psychology of things as well, about makeup and the effect it can have on you and on others. Um, so, you know, or you've got a, just a fun barbecue day out and you just want to look glowy and healthy and well. You know, that's about living your look. That's just about the image you want to project outwards and the way you want to feel inside. That's, that's live your look to me. Um, and it's funny that I just mentioned the whole, like, wellness vibe and I think that is a big trend I was talking a lot about it last week in press appointments about how we are all now wellness signaling right because everyone has been sick for so long (laughs) or everyone it's like oh gosh don't don't be ill um now everyone is almost faking this really healthy look which is going to be a big trend moving forward for the next year or so I imagine Mm. Milk launched into Australia through Sephora earlier this year, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we were waiting. Now available in something like 130 countries. You've obviously done a lot of traveling yourself. What are some of the big differences that you've seen in the ways that people approach beauty from region to region? Mm, such a good question. Um, well, I haven't yet got to Australia yet, which is my next stop, because as soon as we can get there and get in, I am there and I'm coming to see you, Gemma Watts. Oh, perfect. Um, <laughs> but we know, to, I think it's probably for us, it's like how you see the sales as well. So we're in Sephora globally and, you know, Scandinavia and the UK, for example, are obsessed with like Matt Bronzer. Matt Bronzer is the number one bestseller. We cannot keep it in stock mm. at all. Um, whereas France and the Middle East, um, you know, France lip and cheek sticks, everyone loves that. And you can see that like French girl, yeah. like a little bit of a zhuzh, like glow from within. It doesn't look too overdone. Um, the Middle East hydro grip, um, primer mm-hmm. cannot keep that on the shelves because obviously it's a really good one in, in warm temperatures as well. Cause it holds your makeup for 12 hours. It doesn't contain silicone or anything. So it doesn't block pores, which is a great product all around. Um, and in Germany, you have like the vegan milk moisturizer. It's just cannot keep that. That everyone ah. loves. That. I think it's one of the top three skincare products there. Wow. Sephora. Um, like Spain, love cooling water. It's interesting. Mm. People just you know these we have these top sellers that, that vary vary a lot from country to country. But um, I, I love how you know the looks of different regions now. Of, like local has gone global in a way right because the yeah. trends are not just now niching look at like k-beauty everyone's doing it all like the chic french girl and everyone globally can get any of these looks now and we're also privy to the information thanks to social media mm. 
you have been a part of the beauty industry for about two decades now. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Over that time, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry? Oh my gosh. Well, I think it's that, you know, we were just saying that like seeing how people all can do like the the information that's out there. The access to beauty today is incredible. I rewind to the beginning of this conversation where I'm talking about me being a beauty editor and just, it was only us beauty editors dispensing information about beauty. Um, Now that everybody can learn so much and everyone can be their own expert and everyone can find somebody they relate to when it comes to their look and everyone can be a super skilled makeup artist. And I think that, consumer is so much more savvy um, than ever before which is brilliant because it makes the industry have to raise their bars right and they have to then you know be more transparent about production packaging ingredients pricing which is great so that's also a big shift we've had in the industry Um, inclusivity which is Mm -hmm. a word obviously it's bounced around a lot. It's something we believed in from the get go. We were always going to be a super inclusive brand, you know, gender neutral. We never said had any, we never had girl boy in any of our language. We never had anything. We shot, we shot straight boys in makeup for our first campaign five, six years ago. You know, it was a moot conversation to us and it still is. Um, But I do think more people are jumping on that and, there are more beauty markets opening up now, you know, men, mm. kids, tweens, like I think, and that's kind of great if you're in the industry, <laughs> all these new markets. Um, and obviously there's the, the retail of it all. I think how, you know, you used to go to the department store or you used to just be able to buy it online and now you can, you know, you can have a subscription box, you can have your D2C, mm. you can buy it from Instagram, you can, buy it from a vending machine there's just so many wonderful ways now to access beauty as well just actually buy at retail as i should say um and all of this is just it's just good for our industry i I completely applaud all the the leaps and bounds have come in the last as you put it two decades i've been working in this industry (laughs) you are so welcome What changes do you think that we can expect to see from the industry over the coming few years? Oh, gosh, I hope more clean. I hope more naturals. I hope, you know, it, it should just be standard. There should do, be no other option. Um, sustainability when it comes to packaging, you know, that's the holy grail for all of us. We want it just to decompose and we're finished with it. Like mm-hmm. we're all on the mission to figure that one out. And I think that should be more of a, a coalition of people as opposed to just a competition because that is only better for our environment and better for the next generations. Um, so I really hope that's going to happen. I mean, look, the way that technology is coming on as well, I think we can get there if we team together and share our resources and our ideas. And I'm a big proponent in that. Um, I work with a lot of other beauty founders actually. And, um, and uh, it's a, like literally a coalition called Beauty United. And there's a lot of the people you've interviewed and we're all on mm-hmm. a board together and we try and figure these things out. Um, it's almost like the CFDA for beauty, if you like. Mm. Um, but you've got those brilliant brains of an Anastasia or Bobby Brown or Gwyneth Paltrow and like everyone is thinking and working together. And, you know, it's, it's groups like that that were born during COVID and the lockdown that will hopefully be able to shift this industry into a better place. 
I love that. My final question, what's next for Milk Makeup? Oh, what's next for Milk Makeup? World domination. <laughs> innovation. Innovation first um, across the board from product to formulations to ingredient stories to components to formulations. Um, you know, that's something we're very, very keen on, as is the sustainability mission, um, you know, to have products that have components and packaging that just biodegrades once you finish with it like that we, we need to everyone is focusing on that and that's something that i am very excited to see where we can get with um and also we're going to continue to give back to our communities in new york city we work with the center uh downtown new york and we give one percent of all of our uh, profits to them um and we're committed to donating one percent for the future always to LGBTQIA and BIPOC initiatives as well. So we're we're doing good. We're making great makeup, and we're just really excited for the future and excited to be in Australia and to get everyone to hopefully try some milk makeup. That was Zana Robert Brassi, co-founder of Milk Makeup, which you can find on Instagram at Milk Makeup. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.